0: Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich.
1: And I'm Olivia Kane.
0: And welcome to the Weekly Typographic.
1: A podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week.
0: Hi, Olivia.
1: Hey, Micah.
0: <laughs> now that Arrested Development is back in my life, every time you say that, I now recognize that is Buster from Arrested Development.
1: Oh my god. You hey, are, brother. you were up
0: here saying, hey, brother. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's a good impression. You don't have many good impressions, but I'll give you that one. <laughs> <laughs> Shoot.
0: I, I really thought last week that I was so good at Shaggy until you made me listen to myself, and then I was like, wow, that was bad. That was not good. I've been doing that my whole life.
1: It's okay. It's okay. Good comic relief for the Valentine's Day episode. Well. Ugh, yeah, right. We've got some good stuff coming this week on the weekly typographic We have a special guest for our nerd alert, which is very exciting. Mm -hmm. The esteemed type designer and educator Thomas Jockin will be speaking later this episode about the business of custom type. He's talking about how to pitch type and type projects to either your bosses or to clients. And that is really the fundamentals of the workshop we have coming on February 28th. With Thomas. And so it's like a great teaser into what you'll be learning in that workshop. Different frameworks for understanding how to talk about the value of custom type projects to a client or to a boss potentially that you're trying to pitch. And very exciting. He's just such an expert on everything. I don't want to go too in deep now because you're really going to hear a lot from him later in the episode.
0: I like that you're mentioning custom type, though. I think we maybe haven't talked about that positioning of this enough. But that's entirely what this is about, and it's great because it's it's the business side that nobody really talks about enough. We're gonna be we talking about copywriting and how to talk to customers and stuff like that. So listen in at the end, and you'll get a lot of fun detail and even a couple tips that we're gonna be elaborating a lot, a ton in this workshop. So I'm excited for that!
1: Exactly. All right. Getting into our links. They are so exciting. I don't want to wait any longer. (laughs) This first one's intense. I mean, 10 out of 10 every single link this week. I think I contributed like two or three of these, or maybe all of them, but it's fine. (laughs) So, (laughs) understands my, (laughs) that's kind of where the enthusiasm is coming from. The first one, just like, Starting off so strong. It's from Typotech, the Foundry, and it is titled North American Syllabics Fonts Developed in Collaboration with Indigenous Communities. This is a project that I think us at the League have been following. We got a little bit of a teaser on the project back at Type Weekend last year where Kevin King, the type designer who was working with indigenous communities in Canada, talking about his experience of sending proposals to Unicode to amend and add certain characters The whole idea of this is that unified Canadian syllabic fonts aren't necessarily the most supported in our digital typeface world. We can think about the idea that there have been indigenous languages in North America for a super long time. And they're spoken, obviously, and they're written, but having them into our keyboards is a whole different process. So TypoTech was working with Kevin King to work with these indigenous communities and go to Unicode, the people that are allowing certain characters to get into our keyboards to actually be typed with a font to add in missing characters for certain languages and to correct certain glyphs for other languages as well. And this is just like an example of how much we take for granted the fact that when we design fonts for Latin type, we can just like open up our font editor, select a predefined character set, begin drawing. But typefaces with less support take a lot more effort to even get those character sets into a font editor in the first place. Mm. So I think that this is really going back to the ground zero of figuring out how do we get more writing systems into Unicode for communities to actually be able to use them easily on a digital device. I mean, that is just like some bare bones that we take for granted that is so fascinating about this project.
0: I will say, I think, too, you know, if you haven't caught up on this type weekend talk or, you know, haven't heard of us talking about this before, the video on this link is a great way to catch up. You know, it's like 15 minutes long. So I guess for the Internet, that's long, but it's not really that long. It's like there's some beautiful shots in there that you'll appreciate the scenery and some beautiful interviews and some really clear descriptions of what the problem is here Mm -hmm. of just these languages not being even supported in, like you were saying, the type design editors. So how are you going to make fonts for them? So this is just like a beautiful freaking, well-written and crafted explanation of the problem and what they're doing about the solution, which is nice. It's not just like, hey, this sucks anymore. It's like, hey, we're doing something about this.
1: Yeah, and you can just tell this project probably took a long time to kind of get in the works. You have to talk to community members to understand the writing tools that they even use to write the languages and, you know, certain nuances within them. So I'm sure that actually took a long time to create a Unicode proposal. But then once the proposal was accepted, it was still another two years until there could be fully functional fonts. So it's just like a very interesting look into a very unique type design process, one that we don't actually hear about that often, but maybe we'll start seeing more often as we democratize type for a larger geographic audience. And we're probably going to be seeing writing languages get developed into fonts from so many indigenous communities that didn't before have that representation. So I think that's really beautiful.
0: Yeah, great, great find. Well done, my friend. Thanks.
1: Super excited here to give this project more attention, get more eyeballs on it, for sure. The next article... I am so <laughs> fascinated by it. Okay. So
0: I feel like we've talked about this before.
1: Yeah, we have in different ways. But this one, I recently found this article, Sarah Hinman in her newsletter. I don't know if that's because I'm a paid member or not, but she had the subject being like, can a font be racist? That's like such an interesting provocation to think about where that can go and fonts in general and how they can borderline offensive or be offensive outright with the way they look. So- The title of this article is Karate Wonton Chow Fun, The End of Chop Suey Fonts. And it's this kind of deep dive into the history of those really stereotypical quote-unquote Chinese fonts with the swingy wedge-shaped strokes that you've probably seen on restaurant signs, menus, and takeaway boxes or kung fu movie posters. That's what it says from the article. I think we can all kind of start to imagine this. It's fonts that are encoded with like an Asian-ness to it, which sounds terrible, but that is literally like think of your Chinese takeout box. You are thinking of the font. They talk about the history, which mind-blowing to hear this font's origins traces back to 1883. Like, what? That's pretty shocking to me. I didn't realize that type being expressed in that way is that old. And then throughout the 1900s, just used... In so many offensive ways. There was a commercial distribution for it. There were certain names for the fonts. It was called Wonton, Peking, Buddha, Jingjing, like totally like terrible uh, names that just like encompass a bunch of Asian cultures and actually don't mean anything in the end. If you think about like the name of the font, like they're just being like, here's an Asian word. Let's name this font that. That's that's freaking terrible. Anyways, none of this is that surprising, but it was actually, like, very aggressively used in campaigns that were very anti-Asian throughout the 1800s and 1900s. And then, like, terrible. But, like, in 2018, the New Jersey Republican State Committee used a version of it attacking the Korean-American Democrat and said there's something really fishy about Andy Kim. Like, oh, my God. Who, like, insane. The fact that it happened, like, four years ago blows my mind. Um, So it's, like, really – you know, it's really kind of teamed, like, very integrated with politics and uh, American history and people using it to attack Asians. Um, And so, like, you automatically are like, okay, yeah, this font's racist. But what's interesting is that, you know, I think as we are kind of having a larger diversified design community? What does it mean if someone that's part of the Asian American community uses this font? And can we start like subverting the original meaning of this um, to something different? If it's, you know, kind of taken on by someone that wants to use it as a way to send something of a message that has some meaning behind it, that's certainly not just like very one note. Um, So it's interesting, you know, thinking about can a font be racist? Maybe not, but the way it's used can be racist and can, like, you know, reinforce racial stereotypes in a terrible way. And, like, where are we – how are we going to move forward with these fonts in general if we're even going to keep them? Apparently, Monotype still has several of these fonts in their catalog. Like, what does that mean? Should we be taking these down? I don't know. Big open questions, you know?
0: This is real interesting. It actually reminds me of one of the Type Weekend talks that we reviewed, too, where somebody investigated this in Indian scripts. Mm. And it's interesting to realize, you know, that was such an educational talk. I forget who it is. We'll have to look it up. But if you go back and listen to the Type Weekend favorites, it was one of my favorites. And it's I didn't really think about it at the time, but how many... Different cultures are stereotyped this way. It references the pad thai typeface in here. There's these quote unquote Chinese typefaces. There's like canonical. This is Indian food typefaces kind of thing. I wonder how many other ones, I don't know, we're just like used to walking by and not thinking critically about.
1: That's totally right. This is so ingrained in our brain and we don't really think about it that much. If I even got a takeout container with this font on it, I'd be like, yep, that's my takeout container.
0: You wouldn't even read it and think about it whatsoever, right? You'd just be like, that's what takeout containers look like, which is the problem, (laughs) you know?
1: For sure, seeing in the article that like in the 1930s, some Chinese immigrants themselves used these fonts on their restaurant signs as a way to heighten the exotic appeal of their establishments. So it's interesting seeing it was used in many ways. It was used as a way to attack Asians in several contexts. It was used by Asians to create like a shortcut in your brain to understanding what the restaurant is. But oh, there's just like so many ways this font was coded and so many ways to be interpreted and reinterpret it. I just love going into the history and thinking about what that means in the past and what that means moving forward. Black letter had a really similar history. We think about black letter being used by German Nazis and then not being used by German Nazis because they're like, oh, no, this is Jewish. And it was really because they couldn't find foundries that had black letter at them when they were expanding territories. And now sometimes it's used by neo-Nazis in like a terrible way, but then it's also like found its way in other subcultures because it's like moved past what it originally represented. So all these really niche styles get in that history, I think is very eye-opening.
0: I agree. This is a good basis for probably like a dozen other nerd alert topics, right?
1: Yeah. There's
0: so much depth to this.
1: 100%. I want to see, but I I also am curious, you know, they're saying designers are reconsidering what this means and who gets to use these fonts. I want to see them used in a really unexpected way and have that be provocative in like a different way than they have in the past. And I'm curious if that's going to be the case. And if anyone sees that, let me know because I'm curious.
0: I want to ask what you imagine unexpected to be, but I feel like that's probably too difficult a question.
1: It's not too difficult. I think about the Asian American identity that has even developed in the past 30 years that wasn't existent 50 years ago and how people are embracing that and creating messaging towards a unified. Asian-American identity in this country, thinking about my mom and her siblings being super whitewashed. That's like the story for so many people growing up in America in like the second half of the 20th century. Whereas I think we're much more proud of our Asian-American identity, those of us that are these days. And would we somehow reclaiming this in a different way? Mm. I don't know. I'm curious. I'm excited by it. That's what I meant. food for thought. Thanks. Okay, we have two other articles, to get too. I could talk about that all day, but our next article is from one of our favorite people, Micah. It is from Oliver Schoenderfer at Pit My Type. We love Oliver. So excited to see a super educational article out here again and. I love what he's talking about. He recently changed the fonts on his Pit My Type website, which he now has a do- domain name that is PimpMyType.com. I think before he mentions it was Zyken Shots. I'm not pronouncing that correctly. He even says in his text <laughs> it's that good. it's... Impossible to pronounce. But he has a little video, but also has a a great article with such good examples. He basically has these interactive diagrams where you can see the before and after of his type choices. And he explains every rationale for why he changed his fonts on his website, even talking about some of the things like he wanted it to be more striking, more interesting, more unconventional, but then also talking about really in-depth technical details like optical sizing, optimizing for mobile, and stuff like that. And this all these diagrams where you can use a slider to see the before and after type is so satisfying. And he actually acknowledges this too. Like the fonts he was using on his website before weren't bad. They were good fonts, but it was time for him to kind of think how he wanted to be a Bit more expressive with his type and optimize in certain ways. And it's a good example for moving from good design to an even better design for his brand.
0: I also love the interactivity of being able to see it. That's such a good way to start learning or not even start learning, but just to learn more about the subtle output of typography choices, right? Because he picked fairly similar replacements. They're not that different. And so by being able to hover over it and see the tiny differences, I think the mobile one is my favorite because it's the most subtle or even honestly, where he's talking about switching and taking advantage of optical sizing. And he's using a variable font now where where he set the weight of the bold to be 50 units more than it was before. And that's the kind of thing where you're like, oh, wow, that actually is a big difference.
1: Yeah, it feels
0: so silly. Like to go from 400 to 450 when something is bold, you're like, who cares? And then you look at it and you're like, oh, actually, that makes a big difference.
1: Yeah, I love all the small details that he goes into. And also just the realistic perspective. At the end, he goes, Is it worth the effort of changing fonts? Talks about reasons why it would be good for your brand or for your business and goes into some code details, which I never quite know, but I know you're reading because you're you're our expertise for that here.
0: (laughs) I mean, you don't have to understand the code too much. I can say what's interesting is he's going to the extra effort to say if your browser supports variable fonts. Then we do these things when the ratio of your screen is at a certain density or like if it's clear enough with the screen that you're using, then let's make these subtler changes and otherwise leave it how it was. I haven't used this term in a long time, but I think they call it progressive enhancement as (laughs) yeah, I guess that made me sound smart. It's like if you're on an OK computer, it still works. If you're on a really good computer, it works better. I feel like that's the kind of effort that type designers put into their work. And I don't think Oliver is a type designer. I think he's got all the education and detailed perspective of somebody who's who's that good at his craft.
1: Yeah, craft is like such the right word here. Feels great. And congrats, Oliver. I'm getting this out into the world. It looks amazing. Excited for more people to see it. I love the Chi drop caps. They are so funky. I noticed them right away, and they were very fun. So I would keep those because I like them. But your choice. (laughs) I know you're, like, debating it at the end of the article.
0: We might want to tease. I don't think we've mentioned very much, but uh, we have been working on a workshop. Well, we have been working on bringing a workshop from Oliver to the League in the coming months. So you'll be hearing more about About Oliver and the league later on.
1: Yes, good tease. That's all we're given. That's all you get, guys. Trailer to come. (laughs) Just a teaser for now. (laughs) Amazing. Last article I'm just equally obsessed with, as I have equally obsessed with every single article today. And it is from Mind Sparkle Mag, and it is Top 10 Restaurant Identities.
0: I haven't looked at this. Is Deschum on the list?
1: Deshoom is not on the list. I know it's. All right, this
0: article is incorrect, then. I don't know what to tell you. All right.
1: Everything is. (laughs) It's a great little roundup of restaurant identities found on the web. That's pretty much it. I think they're all incredibly (laughs) nice to look at. They all have different aesthetics, all feel very modern, I guess, if we're going to say if there's any common um, style here. Different types of cuisine, different locations these restaurants are in. You can even check out the agencies or studios that worked on these designs. I checked out a few. Something that I really loved actually is that I don't know if there's more than one, but one of them I came across was like a concept project for a restaurant, which hell yeah. You know, if you want to work mm. in hospitality design or restaurant design, concept something up for what you can imagine. And I think that's a great idea to like get your foot in the door in an industry or get noticed as someone did in this article. Just really interesting. I love that they mentioned at the top of the article how menus and stationary design have so much impact when creating an ambiance. And I totally feel that. Like even the textures on some of the menus or just Just the different formats, like there's one teaser image that has menus stacked on top of each other, and they're all different shape cutouts and colors, and even that is just very effective. I love a good multi-paper stacked menu moment. I feel like (laughs) I will take it and be happy. So,
0: As a customer, I I hate that, actually.
1: Okay, but it's visually (laughs) satisfying.
0: It is. It looks very pretty. I like it. I feel the need to point out that you and I have been to this restaurant that is in Philadelphia called Villa La Custa, right? I love it. And two of these kind of reminded me of that. And I, I remember going there the first time and being like, I'm going to save a card because Olivia is going to want to go here just for the menu, how beautiful the typography is. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the Federal by Continua yes. Studio combined with Aqua Tinta, the one right after it. It's totally those vibes. These like kind of, I don't know. How do you describe these things? I don't even know. Like, what are they referencing?
1: Highly elegant. Like the proportions of the Agua Tinta type with the really, really wide G and like the skinny other letters. It's like the Art Deco proportions with the classy serif, like sharp serif type. I feel like Yolaquist does all about that too. And that is a way to my heart if you're serving me a nice meal. (laughs)
0: A <laughs> good menu a good typography.
1: Yes, that's the standard tie. So if you can't if your meal can't match up to this, don't bother with the design. You need to have <laughs> good and Villa Custa did, but it'd be extra disappointing if you had this like beautifully designed menu identity and your food's like
0: meh. Yeah, I agree. Touche, as they say.
1: As they say, Micah, in your world <laughs> with all the aliens. <laughs>
0: Cool, fun article, though. Good find, good find, good find. All right. Joining the podcast today, we've got a special treat. Thomas Jockin, who I know we have mentioned a million times on this podcast before, the founder of Type Thursday, a design teacher in New York, and a professional type designer in his own right, is teaching a workshop at the end of the month called Preparing the Perfect Type Design Pitch and we figured you might want to hear a little bit more. So hi, Thomas. Hey,
2: Micah. Hey, Olivia.
1: Hey.
0: Awesome to have you here with us, and hopefully to everybody else, put a voice to the name that we always mention. Good one. <laughs> so what the heck is this workshop all about, and where did the idea for this come from?
2: Well, I mean, first of all, one, I love the League. I've been a huge fan of the League. I've been kind of a secret member, I feel like, in the background mm. supporting all you, and the mission of the league and the main purpose is to bring type people who love type for people who may think they may not be for them. And they need that kind of guidance to get into the, get their foot in the door. I think the league is a great platform for people to get their toes into type and everything around type, because it's a fantastic platform. And it's something that I think need, we need more people to be involved in. So the first question is the workshop is the idea of we have people learning about type design, how to make fonts and it's awesome. A great hobby. It's a very fun thing to do. But what about going from just a hobby to something real? Maybe not a full typeface design, but actually getting your work not just on your laptop or on your dribble account, but out in the world on a magazine, in a book, on a web page, on a branding assignment, on a logo. How do you get there? How do you get from dabbler to document, right? To kind of go into something real in the world. And I think that's a very different discipline than or skill set from the making of a font or we're working on a piece of lettering, for example. We have to work with people and we need to go from something privately you're making for yourself and sharing with your friends and family to something that's in the world that's being produced in all these different platforms. So to do that, you generally need to inspire, convince, and corral your clients, either clients or your boss, if you work for a full time, to believe in you and believe in fonts as something useful for them so that's a skill set called pitching so that's why perfecting your pitch to make an awesome typeface design project or a font or a piece of lettering of a couple letters it's all different scales that we can think about but the idea is how can we inspire your clients or superiors coworkers, or something in your team to see the value of type design so that's the inspiration behind it and then my favorite parts my favorite projects i've always had is when I've had proactively presented to clients as big as Google and as, you know, as as some high-end fashion brands, for example, on, this is where we think your design can go, right? Seek to understand the client, understand what they're trying to do. And I paint them a picture about how design and how type in particular fulfills something they're going for. And that's an amazing experience that you get to go from just imagining things to painting this picture to a client, to then actually seeing it out in the world. It's a very beautiful thing. I think that's a very powerful experience that I want to share with the league and people who care about type. I think that's a really powerful skill, and I'm excited to have the opportunity to do so later this month.
0: I don't know if everybody out there knows necessarily a bit, but one of the most interesting things for me about this is you have taught me a lot about business. In the last workshop that we did was focused around the business of being a designer in the industry and how to price yourself based on value to a client and like the different modalities of pricing, right? And that's this whole other side of being in the design industry is whether it's like being a full-time freelancer or like, you know, a random project on the side that you want to get paid for. The business mindset is tough to just know. And I feel like you have to find people who can help you understand it in a way that actually makes sense to you. And I'm excited about you teaching this workshop because you have so fundamentally changed the way that I work in the industry and like think about pricing and business and all of this, all this stuff. So I'm curious of some of the stuff that we're going to talk about in this workshop, like what are a couple of the core principles or skills that you have found most important or just like a total shock to people who like, don't usually think this kind of way. What are some of the top ones that we are going to be learning about that'll be useful to hear about?
2: That's a great question, Micah. I mean, the very first thing it's, it's fun. It's, it's by a lot of business. It's always sometimes obvious things when we say it, but then we don't actually live it out and just being Mm. said out loud. Really has huge impact on your success rate in working with clients or in business in general in life. And then the basic example is I call it the U to I ratio. So when you're communicating with people, look at your transcripts of your conversations. Email is very easy to do this because you have a, record, a written record. Look at your emails to your clients or your coworkers. Count how many times you're saying I or singular. It's about you. I know this gets a little confusing, but when you're talking about the I form of you as a person as the designer. Versus how many times you're referring to the client. So it's an mm-hmm. I to you ratio. I promise you, most people, you'll be shocked how often or skewed in their email and their communications to be I-centric.
0: Like, I can do this for you. I have these skills that, you know, I can perform this thing for your project versus you could benefit from this project in this way or you could walk away with these things or... You need X, Y, Z, right?
2: Well, that's one, one step forward, right? That's pretty good. That's a good first step. So first of all, once most people talk about, are too self-centric in their communication to other people. So they're not putting themselves in the shoe of the other person. Empathy, that'd be the way to put it, right? Another mm-hmm. way we can talk about it. I just like using a U to I ratio because we can count it. You can literally count how many times you're referring to, your, to yourself, the I mode, versus you. Now you're, you're oriented towards another person, communicating to them what they're and that's the first step. That's the first one. So a general rule of thumb, you have to be at least a two to one ratio, meaning for every one time you talk about yourself or something I-centric, you need two of the other party. That's the minimum. That's a good first rule of thumb. If you can't even do that, you're not in a good spot because you're not even thinking in a mindset. It's a sign that you're not thinking about the other member. Because fundamentally, the biggest, when you said before about, you know, again, the idea of business and not being kind of understandings about it, I think a big one is a lot of times people think business is extracting, it's taking. First of all, no one's going to take anything from you. You're not going to get anyone from anything from anyone willing, unwillingly. That's all these things. Like, that doesn't work. Yeah, right. It doesn't work. It's, those are illegal. For anything to happen, it's going to have to be mutually beneficial. You're going to have to give an action, and that's actually another secret weapon, not even weapon, but just insight. Ultimately, you have to actually frame it that they're getting more from the deal than you are. Everyone kind of thinks like that's part of the problem. I think people kind of get tripped up when they get eye centric Then they think, oh, I'm getting all this. So I'm extract. I'm like taking advantage of them, I'm exploiting. I mean, yeah, if you're I-centric, then yes. You're not even seeing how you're benefiting the other members, the other counterparty and what they need and what their concerns are or their anxieties or their troubles or their stressors, which now leads to the third principle, which is. Focus on the pain and promise the pleasure. So the idea is everyone has anxieties. Everyone has concerns. No one lives a perfect life where we have no anxieties, no stressors, no problems. Everyone has a problem. The question is, do you know what it is or not? That's ultimately the concern working with clients or bosses. Everyone's got a stressor. Everyone's got a problem. That's a good place to start. But also you don't want to end there because then you're just a party pooper. No one likes negative dances. (laughs) You can't just leave it at you got all these problems. So good for you. You then also need to offer... I don't even want to say solution, because that's normally how it gets talked about, but a benefit. And by the way, that benefit doesn't necessarily have to be purely a business protocol, like you get this efficiency, all the other stuff. Like that might be in the equation, but we're designers. We make things beautiful. We make things inspiring. We make things captivating. That's good Hmm. too. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's what I'm saying. That's why a lot of designers kind of like underwrite their value, because they don't understand that those things are very beneficial too. That's not just raw commerce of utility and efficiency. Those are important. And those are, those are going to be part of the conversation. But that's more resolving pain. It's like getting you the neutral state. How can you inspire someone? How can you captivate them? How can you see something more in business than, or in this exchange? That so design is not just stuff. Here it is. It's not just you buying, th- like making things just to be bought. There is a story to be told. And you as a designer have the opportunity to do that. You can make a story about it's not just you. You're not just making a font. There's some vocal type, for example. He doesn't just make fonts. He tells stories. The font mm-hmm. is part of a story. And that makes his products so much more inspiring. That's just one example. So, that was, so I've had to summarize what are the three kind of three principles to walk away with from here. Are you to eye ratio? Are you self-centric or are you other-centric? Empathy, you know, where you can put it. Are you focusing on the pain and promising the pleasure? So basically, where you looking understanding the concerns and stressors of your client or your coworker or your superior. And how can you catch a story, craft a story that inspires, and captivates and motivates? I
0: like that. And obviously, this is just a kind of a tease of many of the things that we're going to be talking about. And what I'm kind of looking forward to is hearing a lot of your actual insight in the projects that you have pitched, which, you know, I'm sure will be anonymized and whatever, because there's always some sort of NDA and kind of, of course, NDAs and
2: whatnot. Right.
0: But I think it's going to be really useful in this workshop to hear your actual experience, which, you know, it's just something like you don't get a lot of (laughs) hearing a professional's actual experience. Here's the principles we've distilled it down to, but like here's some times that I applied it and here's how you can apply it in an actual scenario.
1: I'm curious. Once, you know, Micah mentioned applying the scenarios, I was like, okay, that triggered something. When we first talked about this workshop, I was like, type design proposals might seem like this big, scary, intimidating term. And there's a bunch of people on two sides of the type design field. There's like the people that are benefiting from the mass education we're having on creating typefaces. And there's the people that are already creating typefaces and have a business. And it's kind of hard to bridge that gap. And I think that's what this workshop's gonna do, which is very exciting. Could you give an example of times in the past when someone that's not necessarily a full-time type designer has used kind of a type proposal to create a font, but isn't necessarily doing it for huge clients or something like that? It's maybe more of an approachable kind of project that someone could imagine themselves doing.
2: Yeah. I mean, the first thing is that you don't necessarily have to make full typefaces. That'd be the first answer to that question. I know colleagues as well as myself who've done just numbers, for example, numbers for a watch or initial capitals for illustrations for a book, for example. Those are type applications. That's the first thing, right? In terms of bridging, I agree with you absolutely, Olivia. There is definitely this bridging of the gap. Dabblers, the getting in, you're just exploring and getting into it. And the type designers who are making fonts and retail. There is a gap, or there's a separation, but I think the brief is the middle ground because you can hit this as small as literally a bunch of letters, a bunch of glyphs, very small control set, or do a full family, like monster projects, That are huge. At the same, you can the same structure applies for both. Just the degree of complexity is a difference of what you're talking about.
0: That just reminded me. Maybe before I met you, or when I met you, a few years ago, when I was working at it was a startup called Citizen, and it was this very dramatic app that gave you notifications of crimes that were happening around you. And I was working at this tiny startup and they kept talking about having to rebrand a little bit. They'd like gotten some not great press and kind of wanted to seem a little different. We're talking about having a redesign of the logo. And I remember being like, well, shoot, I know about typography. And I designed a few letters it was a very kind of Hollywood-esque thing that I was trying to portray of like, oh, we could go in this direction and make it seem real cool. And I illustrated it by, like, making those few letters and showing an example of what a new logo could look like and trying to pitch it to them and really not understanding how to pitch it to them. Where like, I knew it was a good idea and a cool direction, but didn't know how to show them why it was worth doing And ultimately, nothing ever happened with it. And it just disappeared and nobody talked about it. And I personally was really disappointed because I felt like I could have brought a lot to the table if I'd known how to talk about it. And I just didn't know how to put it in front of them in the right way.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's amazing what the right framework gives you in terms of how much more powerful you become in terms of your relationship to other people. Right? Because the things that instead of being frustrated and flustered that you just – you wish these people could get it, especially if they're not designers themselves. So you got to talk cross-discipline or across the aisle, metaphorically. It's a big difference between just kind of hoping and praying that it's something we just throw stuff against the wall with sticks versus having a system that at least makes it more rational and more logical. Of a, I'm not sitting here saying you're going to get every pitch is going to be a slam dunk. No one has a perfect record in pitching. That's part of the nature of this. But at least it's rational and it has a stronger probability of success.
1: I'm so excited about this. I think that this topic is pretty rare to be talked about and taught about in the type education sphere. So it's just like a really unique opportunity to learn about something that you are an expert in, Thomas. And I'm just so excited for people to absorb that expertise.
2: (laughs) Thank you. As you can tell, I'm very animated. It's late at night. I had a long day, but I still get very animated about this topic because I think it's a very, as you said, it's very rare for these opportunities to share insights. And so I think I really believe in giving back to the community. I've been in this industry for over 10 years at this point, and there's a lot of mistakes. You know, <laughs> basically, you can learn from my mistakes. You don't have to go through 10 years of making mistakes to get to the insights I have so that we're going to all be better off as a community. When we share information together, we can be better off by just even simple exchanges like this. So I'm really I'm looking forward to the workshop later this month.
0: I like it. And so for everybody out there who's been listening and it's like, oh, you know, I'm kind of interested We're going to be including the link to the workshop in the newsletter so that you can go grab a ticket first. It's going to be a sort of a different format than we usually do, too. So it's going to be on a weeknight evening so that hopefully you can kind of fit it into your week a little bit better. It's a little bit more affordable than our usual workshop. And it's kind of going to be a fun little evening session of of learning how to pitch. So thanks a bunch for coming on, Thomas, and talking us through some of the
2: highlights. You bet. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to seeing you all later this month.
0: All right. Bye, everybody.
2: Do-do-do-do. <laughs>